0: Well, good morning, Docs of Church, and uh, all of you that are here in Madison, or if you're a college student that's scattered across the country, my name is Ronnie, if I haven't met you yet, one of the pastors here, and if you would have told me a couple of years ago that as a pastor, I would one day be preaching to an online audience, alone, basically, in a building in front of a, a rock wall, I would have told you you're crazy, but here we are. Uh, If you're, like, new to Doxon, you're just kind of checking us out online, no, we did not build a a rock wall in our church. We Don't give us that much credit. We actually, this summer, purchased a a former trampoline park and have turned it into a church, and we're getting ready to to move into it at, at Easter, and then kind of all these different things happen with the... The global pandemic, and so, so here we are pivoting and doing these online services, and we're so glad that you're, you're joining us. If you want to actually grab your Bible, we're going through a series in the book of Acts. You can go to Acts chapter 19, and that's where we're going to be today, but before we get there, I just want to pause in, in this moment and actually just like thank all of you of Doxa Church for your generosity and for continuing to be so generous in a time of uncertainty, okay? So it's one of those times right now where it's actually more important than ever that we live up to that value we have of truly being a family. That rather than turning inward in fear, we continue to face each other outward in community, helping each other out in in connection groups and figuring out how all that works online and continuing to support the work of our church family financially. But also it's important to keep turning outward in mission because, guys, our, our mission hasn't changed. God has us here in Madison to share the gospel in our lives for the good of our city and for his glory. And if anything, the need has just become even greater. So it's been really encouraging actually to see how, how both like the, the COVID relief fund that we've started and just our general fund giving has continued to, to go. And we're gonna be able to use, use all that money that's, that's coming in to support not only our family but the work that's going on in our city. So just so encouraged and thankful and, and uh, yeah, thankful to see that continuing. So what we need to do here is just acknowledge, okay? that we've entered a surprisingly new chapter in all of our stories. When we look back on the spring of 2020, we're gonna remember it as a time of of entering like this surprising new chapter. And at this point, we still don't know how it's all gonna play out. At one point, it seemed like really far away, but now we're in the middle of what's become a global pandemic that's really touching all of our lives and our individual families in unique ways. And it's truly a season of loss for all of us in different ways. The loss of our plans, the loss of our comforts, the loss of our sense of control, the loss of our health, the loss of loved ones, the loss of of like real people that we know, potentially the loss of our lives. It's a season of loss, it really is. And one of the questions that just we face daily and looms over all of us is, how are we gonna respond in this moment? I face that question every day when I wake up, I, I feel it in my bones, like how do I respond to what's going on around me? When we turn on the news, we see like varied responses of this from people. We see like incredible stories of bravery and sacrifice and generosity pitted up against stories of fear and selfishness and self-preservation. You know, so like there's the stories on the news of like these heroic doctors and nurses working on the front lines. And then the next news story is about like reckless spring breakers, toilet paper hoarders. And if we turn from the news to just look at our own hearts personally, I know for me, I've had both moments of courage and cowardice during this time. It's hard to know how to respond. It's such a fast changing environment. I feel like I can't keep up. It's actually so much easier for me to just be reactive in this time to be reactive and panic than to sort of take a step back and try to find some poise and perspective. It feels a little bit like a storm. Like the story of what's going on, the story of COVID-19, it feels so all-encompassing that the only options feel like I can either hide from it or I can try to face it head on and potentially just get swept up in it. But the Christian faith offers us a third option. The book of Acts actually has been reminding us of this option all along, an option that lets us get shelter from the storm without hiding from it and abandoning our neighbors, a way to engage this moment without being overwhelmed by it the Christian faith offers us a third option. It offers us a bigger story, the biggest story. It's the story that we've been seeing unfold in the book of Acts. It's the story of the whole Bible. Christians call it the gospel, the good news. It's the story of how God is redeeming and restoring a broken world. Now, it's a a story that both fully acknowledges evil and suffering and the uncertainty of things like a global pandemic, but it also acknowledges and offers a path of hope through the suffering. New York Times journalist David Brooks recently said this on a video call that I was on. He said, there is no suffering so great that it can't be taken up into the bigger story of the cross and the empty tomb. You need to hear that this morning. Our, our world needs to hear that this morning. There is no suffering so great, no global pandemic so big that it actually can't be taken up into the bigger story of the cross and the empty tomb. It's a story that is brutally honest about the spread of death that we're seeing in our world right now. But it's emphatic that death does not win in the end. If you don't know much about the story of the Bible and you're tuning in this morning, here's just like the punchline, if I could sum it up really briefly. Life triumphs over death. Life triumphs over death, not coexists, triumphs. The apostle Paul, who we're gonna read about today in Acts 19, he says in Romans 5, he sums up the story like this. He says, death spread to all men because all sinned. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness that leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, there's actually two stories unfolding in front of us right now. There's the story of COVID-19, which is a story of the spread of death, the death of our plans, the death of our way of life, the death of human beings. But then there's the story of the gospel, which is the story of the spread of life, new life springing out of ruined plans, new life being breathed into human cultures, eternal life being offered and given to dying people. And so as we look at Acts chapter 19 today, I basically want to show you like three pictures that emerge from the apostle Paul's life as he does ministry in a place called Ephesus, Three pictures as he responds to the story of death that was playing out in his own times to help us faithfully live as the people of God in the time of the coronavirus. So three pictures, three ways for us to respond. And the first picture that we're gonna get is we're gonna see Paul, the believer. Paul, the one who believes in Jesus. We're gonna see him persuading both Jews and Greeks in this city of Ephesus to believe in Jesus. So why don't you read with me now, starting in verse one of chapter 19. We're gonna read the first 10 verses. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, listen, on hearing the name of Jesus, it says they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all, verse eight. So after this, he entered the synagogue and for three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So this is the first picture we get, Paul the believer, Paul the preacher, Paul the persuader. And the first way that we need to respond by looking at this picture is we need to hold on to Jesus as our only hope. That's our response when we wake up every morning is we hold on to Jesus as our only hope. This is a moment that is exposing human vulnerability and everybody is looking for something to hold on to it's one of the things that's happening right now is actually like the false sense of security that we've had in a western affluent society it's it's being revealed it's not even a new vulnerability but it's a vulnerability that has always been there it's been there all along but we've been able to insulate ourselves we've been able to protect ourselves from so much of the risk and and praise god that we've been able to But through modern technology and and advancements, we've been able to insulate ourselves. But what we're seeing now playing out right in front of our eyes with the story of COVID-19 is like this dramatic picture of human vulnerability being exposed. And right now in this moment, while we hope and we pray for a vaccine to be developed, social distancing and self-quarantining are the only viable options that can actually protect us from the spread of infection and a spread that would overwhelm our healthcare system. And this moment that we're living through right now in history is actually much more like the moments that Paul would have lived through back then. He lived in a pre-modern culture. That's what the book of Acts is documenting. They didn't have nearly the advances in technology that we have today. We're going to see in verse 11 that Paul's ministry, much like Jesus's ministry, was lived out among the sick and the diseased and the dying And one of the things that people in that culture saw really clearly that we're starting to see more clearly right now is that when our vulnerabilities get exposed, there's a futility to so many of the things that we had put our hope in. If our hope was in good health, these are scary times. If our hope was in our good job, these are anxious times. If our hope was in a lifestyle that allowed us to just freely move about the world and go as we please, then these are incredibly frustrating times. And all around us, the people and the places that we look to for security are being threatened by the spread of this virus. And everyone, in a sense, everyone across the board is having to decide, what am I going to reach out for and grab onto to get me through? But against this backdrop of darkness that we're seeing, Okay, against the, the story of the coronavirus, the light of the gospel should actually shine brighter than it maybe ever has in our lifetime. Against this backdrop of darkness, we need to hold on to Jesus as our only hope. This is what Paul's ministry was all about. Look back down at the text with me, Acts chapter, chapter 19. Paul is basically walking around all the time. This is so typical of him telling people that Jesus is the one. He's the one. He's the only hope. That we have Verse four says, he was telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. So he gets into a conversation with these very religious people, these very devout people, but through asking them questions, it turns out that they were just disciples of John the Baptist. They were not yet disciples of Jesus. They didn't believe what Paul believed. They weren't yet Christians. They didn't believe the most important thing. They didn't know the name of Jesus. They didn't know that He was the one. They didn't know even about the Holy Spirit the life-changing power and presence of God by not knowing about the Holy Spirit. Listen, this is what they didn't know and this is what so many people in the world don't know that I hope you know. The same God who created the world once is recreating the world right in front of our eyes through the power of His Spirit. Do you know that this morning? This is what Paul believed. Okay, this is a moment where we're realizing we're not gonna find any hope in our news feeds. Our news feeds are full of the names of leaders and doctors and scientists that we're looking for or looking to in the crisis. We're looking for them to show us a way forward and praise God for these people and the work that they're doing. But listen, every human leader, every human leader who is helping humanity right now can at best only be a type of John the Baptist, just a mere mortal who can point to the one who is our actual living hope because only Jesus delivers us from our ultimate enemy, which is death itself. Okay, so we pray for scientists and doctors to create a vaccine, but listen, we know, we believe, Paul believed that Jesus defeated death. So right now, this is our response. We cling to the name of Jesus. We put our full hope in him at this moment, and that's actually, that's actually what these men do. Look down at, at verse five. It says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus on hearing this message that Jesus is the one, Jesus is the only hope. It says they're baptized. So, so what, is, what is baptism? What does it mean to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus? If you're a Christian this morning, think back to your baptism with me. Baptism is a physical picture of what you're holding on to for your hope. That's what baptism is. Everyone in the world is holding on to someone or something, but everything is only John's baptism in a sense. Your job is only like John's baptism. If you're holding on to your job, it's like this this temporary thing that cannot deliver you ultimately from death. What we need is we need baptism in the name of, of Jesus. Because when we're baptized in the name of Jesus, what we're saying with that physical symbol is we're saying we believe that his death was our death, that his resurrection will be our resurrection. When we go under the water, we're fully acknowledging the sin and the brokenness of both this world and our lives. That's what the water symbolizes as we go under it. But when we come out of the water, we are like rejoicing and proclaiming that death is not the end, that new life is where we are all headed in Christ, that we're united with him, that his death was our death, but his resurrection is our resurrection. That's what it means to be baptized into his name. That's what the going under and the coming out symbolizes. So your baptism, Christian, was you putting your your flag in the ground saying, this is what my hope is in. It's in the death of of Jesus. It's in the resurrection of Jesus. So remember your baptism this morning and hold on to Jesus. When you remember it, you remember, my hope is not ultimately in technology or medicine. My hope is in a full resurrection one day from the dead and the new world that my God will create. So Christian, this is a time where we need to hold on more tightly than ever to Jesus. And listen, it's okay if your world has been shaken up by this. It's okay if you're feeling a little bit disoriented, if you're feeling like you can't quite grab your footing, but in this moment, what I'm trying to do for you by showing you this in the Bible, is say that Jesus has not been shaken, his hand is reaching out, grab onto it, grab onto it. And one of the ways that we can tell if someone is holding on to Jesus as their only hope is that they start to hold out Jesus as the hope of the world to the people around them. So look back again at verse eight. So look at verse 8. It says, He entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Let's just take this phrase by phrase. It says, He entered the synagogue, and for three months, so he starts in this, the synagogue, but then he goes to this other place called the Hall of Trance for two years. He, he entered. like he, he did this purposefully. He didn't do this randomly. He knew that God had called him to a place into these people. In, in both the synagogue and the hall of Tyrannus, these were like the places where the conversation about life and culture were happening in Ephesus. And Paul was saying, I've got the hope of the world. I gotta get in on the conversations that people are having so I can present the hope of the world to them. And in our time of social distancing and isolation, we're gonna have to get creative with this, but somehow it's gonna have to work online. Somehow it's gonna have to work like you, your neighbor on the other side of the fence, six feet away. But, but we've gotta find ways, guys, to get in on the conversation to tell people because there's people that just don't know and it says he spoke boldly. It says he spoke boldly. Times of suffering and uncertainty are tests of what we really believe. See, Paul, he was not like traveling the world as a celebrated TED talker that people just applauded every time he came into a city. He was actually suffering greatly. He was oftentimes beaded. He was opposed. He was constantly around sick and dying people. He saw suffering in the world like a first row seat but he moved forward and he spoke boldly because he believed in his bones that Jesus had died and risen from the dead. The pressure of the suffering that he both experienced and that he saw, it actually made him hold on to Jesus even tighter and proclaim him with more urgency. Is this happening for you right now? Is the pressure that you're feeling causing you to hold on to Jesus even tighter and proclaim him even louder? And notice it says boldly, not angrily. He doesn't speak with anger or with condescension toward people. He speaks confidently and full of compassion. And then it says he's reasoning and persuading them. He's, he's arguing with them. He's saying, like, I, I want you to believe what I believe. And if we're really holding on to Jesus, we should be trying to persuade everyone else to as well. In more comfortable times like we were in a month ago, we could have, like, fallen to the temptation to, like, not push our beliefs, so to speak, on another person but now we realize the veil has been like torn away we realize that life is much more like a sinking ship that we've like found the lifeboats and if you really think you found the lifeboat you need to tell everybody else about the lifeboat you need to persuade people and in a time where it like so much is uncertain I think people are less wanting advice they're actually looking for someone who says like I've found hope I'm holding on to hope. I'm actually certain about this. I have conviction about this and I have a clear message of hope. And a hope about what? Well, about, he says, the kingdom of God. He's persuading them and telling them about the kingdom of God. So as we get into the conversations that our world is having, that our neighbors are having, that our family and friends are having about how the world is being continually shaken right now, we get a chance to tell them about the unshakable kingdom of God. This moment where we're seeing the frailty of human kingdoms, a virus so small we can't even see it, yet it's turning the world upside down. We get to tell people that Jesus is still standing, that Jesus has not been shaken. His kingdom is still standing. In fact, it's even shining more brightly maybe than ever before. More than that, his kingdom actually came for like the very purpose of pushing back the darkness that we are now experiencing. One of the things I started to do with, with my son, Jack, he's, he'll be three this summer, is we have this little book called The New City Catechism. So it's just kind of like a question and answer thing that, that teaches myself and teaches him like what, what are like, the big things we need to know about God? And I've always been struck by the first question and answer that's in that book. And, and it's been never more relevant to my life than, than now. I was reading this to him last night. Here's, here's the question. It's the question that our world is asking. What is our only hope in life and death? What is our only hope in life and death? That's the question. Here's the answer that it gives. Our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but we belong both body and soul in life and death to God and to our savior, Jesus Christ. Our only hope is that we are not our own that we don't ultimately like, belong to ourselves, but we belong to the one who has defeated death and resurrected from it. Our hope, as much as we hold on to Jesus, our hope is that he's holding on to us, carrying us. I've prayed that prayer so many times in these weeks. Carry me through this day again, Jesus. Don't let me go. So our first response from this first image of Paul the believer is to hold on to him and to plead others to hold on to him. He's our only hope. Let's look at the next section now to see our second response. This is verse 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. You're going to really want to pay attention to what is said in this, like, just don't skimp over these words. Listen to what happens next. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, It's like a a traveling group of of Jewish demon caster outers. They undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Verse 17, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What a scene, what a scene. And this is where we get like the second image that I wanna show us this morning. It's this image of Paul, the servant. Paul healing and walking among the diseased and the impressed. And this shows us our response in this moment as we walk through a similar moment, a similar story. We need to serve our world through God's strength. Just like Paul, we need to move out and serve our world and the strength that God provides. So as he, as he walks through the suffering in the city of Ephesus, just notice a couple things, okay? First, notice he takes the posture of a servant. These uh, traveling uh, Jewish exorcists, itinerant exorcists, the sons of Sceva, they're being contrasted with Paul here. Notice that they see the brokenness in the world. They see people that are sick and need healing, and their instinct is self-preservation. It's economic. It's self promoting they're trying to make money off these people these are the sons of Sceva are like the ones that are hoarding supplies trying to exploit exploit people right now has anybody seen like all of the commercials for candy crush that are just flooding our our Netflix right now like like what what could be a least helpful thing for any of us to be doing with our time right now than just just escaping into candy crush but yet they want to they want to make money off of us this is like what the sons of Sceva were doing that was their instinct Paul He sees a hurting world and his instinct is very different. His instinct is to serve it, to love those people. And this is the posture that we need to take right now, Doxa. We need to be asking God and the people around us, like, like, I don't even know, but how can I serve you? I'm I'm here to serve. I'm here to love. And it's been amazing to see this response already from so many people in, in not only our church, but in, in Madison, things that, that we're doing like the COVID relief fund and just the incredible, like almost instant generosity that came with that. And I hope that these are just the beginning of the stories that we're all gonna have to tell of this time one day. I was reading an article this morning of, of just what's happening in New York City right now with the doctors and nurses that are literally like risking their lives, putting it all on the line to fight against the effects of this virus. But we've got a long road ahead of us. And when I think of just all the needs piling up, I get a little bit overwhelmed and I wonder like, am I going to be strong enough to meet those needs? That's the second thing you need to notice about Paul. He's not just a servant, but he's a servant who is like serving in God's power. Notice where his power comes from. It says God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. The hands of Paul but it was the work of God through him. Paul is being shown here. Like the image we need to remember about him in this moment is that he's like this walking miracle. People just touch him and they get healed. They just get near him. But it's not because he had some kind of internal miraculous nature to him. No, not at all. It's because he was being used by God. He was a walking miracle because God's power was flowing through him. He hadn't harnessed God's power. He's being used by God's power. The sons of Sceva, again, they're like shown in contrast to this. They want to control and contain the power of God for their own gain. And it's like this magic thing. Like they think that God is like a magical power. And for us, we're not so much into magic anymore mainly, but we are into technique and skill. Technique, it's about harnessing power, okay? Human ability, our ability to kind of marshal our resources together. But guys, Christianity, walking with Jesus is about being harnessed by power, not harnessing power. The sons of Sceva, they give us like this opposite picture of what we hope the outcome would be when they actually get overpowered by the evil spirit and they run away naked and wounded. Because the difference between the sons and Sceva and Paul was that they wanted to use God, Paul wanted to be used by God. They say, I adjure you by the Jesus. Like, they, they don't know Jesus personally, so they have to just call him the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They wanted power. Paul wanted to know God and love people. That's why when, when the demons respond back to them, they say, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? I don't know you. You have, you have no power because you don't know God so if we are called right now as Christians to move out into the world and serve in God's strength, the question is like, how do we, how do we actually do that? How do we rely on God's strength instead of our own? Because if you're anything like me, you spent your whole life figuring out how to use your own strength. There's a, a pastor, uh, theologian named Francis Schaeffer who had a sermon called The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way. And in it, he basically outlined like three, three steps towards learning how to be used by God and, and draw strength from his power step number one is we must humble ourselves before God we must humble ourselves before God Schaefer says we must comprehend something of our need for spiritual power we must comprehend something of our need we should like feel the pressure of this moment coming on us right now and we should realize that we don't have it within us to meet it we need God Humanity is being humbled in a large way by the virus right now. Our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses are being revealed, but we don't need to be like the sons of Sceva who fled away wounded and naked in fear. We actually need like a different type of fear to come over us. Fear is sweeping our world right now and actually fear should be sweeping the church but not the same type of fear. It should be the type of fear that makes us fall on our faces and call out his name like the Ephesians did. Look back at verse 17 and how this happens. So they had this moment where they just saw the power of God working through Paul and they realized like we need to repent of using our own power. The fear of God fell upon them, humbling them. They confessed and repented of their practices. And this is a moment for us as Christians, as the church to say there's like incredible need out there and we need to move towards it and serve, but we will not be able to do it in our own strength. We need God. We need to humble ourselves. The second thing that Schaefer points to after we humble ourselves is he says we must actually posture ourselves and take the role of a servant. Notice that Paul, he was, he was empowered by God as he served, as he walked among the sick and the dying serving them. That was like Paul's moment of greatest spiritual power in this text. And this is one of Jesus's most surprising teachings is that greatness in the kingdom of God is to be a servant. The cross is like this picture of sacrificial service and that's what we need to model to the world right now. This could be our moment of greatest power, actually, Doxa. Our moment of greatest power as we choose to be servants to the people around us. And, and I know it sounds high and lofty right now, and it actually is. We're participating in like the redemption of the world by being used by God. But it's probably just as simple as like, you sending a text message to your neighbors. As you talking to them from like, across the fence, as you finding ways to, to use technology to ask that simple question of how can I serve you? How can I meet a need? It's when we position ourselves like that, as servants, that God wants to come on us in power. And then the last thing that he says that we need to do is we need to learn to depend on God continually. Learn to depend on God continually. He says there must be the daily practice of the reality of the God whom we know is there. This is what happened to the Ephesian believers when it says the fear of the Lord came on them. They were so aware that they were in God's world that their whole life was filled and charged with purpose and meaning, that there were people that they needed to serve. They had a daily practice of the reality of God. Do you have a daily practice of the reality of God in your life right now? Does that statement even like make sense to you? Are, you? are you walking around your life, maybe you're, you're quarantined you're, in your home, just aware of the God that loves you, loves this world, and has a plan for what's going on? I do think the pressure of this crisis is revealing a lot about our relationship with God right now as individuals. How well do we actually know him? How much of our, of our vitality and spiritual life was based on us and him and how much of it was based on some of these things that we've kind of lost in this time? Interactions with other people, large gatherings at church. How closely do you walk with him? The sons of Sceva did not know God firsthand, Right? They call him the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Like this is a secondhand experience of God. They don't know him personally and so they have no power. The demons, they look back at them and say, Jesus, I know, Paul, I recognize, but who are you? Listen, darkness flees from Jesus and from people that walk closely and know Jesus. Shelter in place right now is like changing up our rhythms in a lot of ways. Our daily practices, our daily habits have been greatly affected. And I think the question is, is Satan threatened in any way, by the way you're spending your time right now? Are you spending your time with God, drawing strength from his presence and power in a way that Satan would actually look at you and say, I know who you are because you've been with Jesus? Or does he view the way that you're spending your time as a total non-threat? So here's the challenge and the opportunity. The challenge in the days ahead or the challenge is that the days ahead of us are going to overpower us if we don't learn to follow God, to trust Him moment by moment. But the opportunity, the opportunity here is that maybe this pressure, this isolation, this uncertainty will cause us to go deeper with God than we ever have before. And maybe some of the stories we'll tell of this time is how we became like these walking miracles that were able to, to help and serve our neighborhood and our city. So we hold on to Jesus as our only hope. We serve the world in its strength because we know that the story of the gospel is greater than the story of COVID-19. The whole reason that Jesus came to earth was for days like this. We see in verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And the question for us is, do we think that this could actually happen in our day? Could we actually look back on March, April, May, June, 2020 and remember it not only for the disruption that COVID-19 brought, but for the redemption that God brought through it? This is what Christians around the world are actually praying for right now. This is what I'm praying for right now. This is what I hope you're praying for right now, is that this time of disruption would actually lead to a time of of renewal, that we would actually have eyes to see and, and recognize that some of the loss, just some of the loss we're experiencing is actually the death of our idols, our false gods, our false senses of security, and that that's actually a good thing. I hope you're praying that people will turn to Jesus because they saw that everything else they hoped for was coming crashing down and then they saw him still standing there, unshaken. Look at how Acts 19 ends with the total disruption of the city of Ephesus. And in this, we're gonna see our final picture of the apostle Paul. Paul as like this visionary. I'll show you what I mean. Verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to go through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That is Christianity. So Christianity is disturbing the city. Verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only in this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed of from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus and Macedonians who were with Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him go. So Paul wants to get in there. There's like this angry riot forming because they're realizing everybody's starting to worship Jesus and not these false gods. And Paul is actually like, disturbance, riot, I'm in. I wanna go, but they don't don't let him go. They don't want him to get hurt. Verse 31, and even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him to not venture into the theater. The a theater of probably over 20,000 people. So picture just like a massive, angry riot, angry mob. And look at what they do. Verse 32, some of them cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put forward and Alexander motioning with his hand wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice. Two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Okay, so translation on that, we've got this town clerk guy who basically stands up and is like, "Uh, I can't have a a riot. I don't think that anything this Paul guy is doing is wrong. Demetrius, just kind of be quiet, like nothing to see here. There's no real disturbance. Okay, so you have have the the town clerk who kind of doesn't see anything. But then look at the last verse of our text this morning, chapter 20, verse one. Look at Paul's response. Look at what he sees. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. So Paul, he, in, the, in the wake of this uproar, in the wake of this riot, he decides, my work here is done. I've done what I needed to do. I have proclaimed Jesus. I have loved these people. There are people now turning from Jesus to actually worship the true God, the God of the Bible. The accusation was that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's made with hands are not God's. And that's actually exactly what had happened. So he says mission accomplished and he encourages the disciples. Paul is like this, this guy who actually sees something that, that the town clerk doesn't see. He sees the death of idols and the replacement with worship of Jesus. This is what Paul sees. And, and I'm not saying that like, we should be praying for all professional sports to never return. That would be horrible. There's a way to enjoy like, these things that God has created, these gifts that he's given us as gifts from God and not God replacements. But there is no redemption for things like sex trafficking and pornography and child slavery and the abortion industry and so many other evil institutions that sinful people have created. We should pray that so many people turn to God during this disruption, that these things like these false gods, these idols, these systems of oppression are actually destroyed and they never come back. That like the text says, they may be counted as nothing. That God would use this moment to shake us out of of like our stupor as a culture, a culture that values individual autonomy and self-expression over everything else into a culture that values the collective, that loves our neighbor, that cares for the weakest and the most marginalized among us. We should be like Paul. We should be praying that the gospel re- will rebuild what the virus is tearing down, and that the real death blow will be to every false God of our culture. So, this is the last image. Paul, this, this visionary, who, who he sees the uproar and encourages his disciples. He sees and he, and he feels encouraged. And what he's encouraged about is that in the wake of the uproar, he sees the kingdom of God advancing. He leaves the city of Ephesus encouraged because of what he sees. The town clerk doesn't see it because he's not looking for the kingdom of God. And so this is our response. In this moment, as we see so much disruption, as we see so much like crashing down or slowing down all around us, we can actually be encouraged in a time of disruption if we learn to look for the kingdom of God. Even as human kingdoms decline, the kingdom of God is always advancing. We're always getting a day closer to the great day when every tear will be wiped away. So just a concluding thought, and then we'll pray. I've been thinking a lot about the words from from John 1, talking about Jesus. It says, light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is definitely a time of darkness. The, The Bible is unapologetic about that. But the overarching message of the story of God is that light shines in the darkness, and that darkness has not overcome it. And Doxa, we have a hope that darkness cannot overcome. And it should be shining brighter than ever. And I'm reminded of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, and he actually says now Christians are supposed to be like these shining lights in the world because God's power is at work through us as we serve the world. Let's hold on to that hope and let's shine like those lights. Will you pray with me? God, when this is all said and done, our neighbors, our city, our country, our world, we're praying that they would remember it as a time where they saw the light of the gospel shining brighter than they ever had before. God, that we would look back on this time and amidst all the disruption, we would actually remember it as the time where we saw the kingdom of God advance like we never saw it before. God, we thank you that you are you are not only like, like leading us through history, but you're empathizing with us in the moment. And so we bring our, our suffering to you. We bring our questions to you. We bring our wounds to you. We bring our, our anxieties to you because we know that you're the king. God, and scattered throughout the city of Madison and our homes, scattered throughout the country, as, as college students, we just unite with you right now. We unite together. And we pray and ask that we would see your kingdom come. We ask that you would help us to like remember in this moment and even as we sing, to hold on to you as our only hope and to remember that you're the one who's really holding on to us. So we pray this in Jesus's mighty name. Amen.